You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish, and today we are joined by the man featured in the new season of F1 himself. His name is Abby. Thank you. Thank you. It was uh, my 15 seconds of fame there. (laughs) For all of those who are wondering what episode I'm in, it's episode six. I'm uh, one of the uh, the people in the masks. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not in the show at all. <laughs> I don't even think they have uh, they have a crowd this season. Uh, I haven't seen the season yet. Yeah, but, no, uh, me neither. Watch the actual season, but I haven't seen the the, the show yet. Little little yeah, little trivia for people at home is uh, Abby is a big racing fan, big car fan. Yeah, that is uh, that, that's not really trivia, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun fact. But you it's uh, but it's just funny because I'm a big fan of the F1 Netflix series, and I don't. I don't like watching the season while it's happening because I don't want to ruin the series for myself. <laughs> <laughs> you did say that. I was going to say, and you also don't really like cars. <laughs> That's true. I really don't care about cars. Yeah. Just a fun fact. When Manish and I were in Detroit, which is like Auto City Central. We were driving back home and I was pointing out every single like sweet car because American car culture is unreal. Mm-hmm. And halfway through, Manish looks over at me. He's like, hey, man, if it's a car, like you don't, you don't have to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> the funniest answer i've ever gotten most people are just polite and they nod but i guess after Mm. four hours you're like just just stop yeah you can just (laughs) shut up about the cars now yeah it's good it's good all right off to a good start um okay so guys this week we're recording it's sunday march 13th uh we're going to be doing q a so we have a lot of questions which have piled up over the last uh i'd say two to three months um we actually have not answered we're usually a little bit better on the emails, but we really did not answer uh, any. So sorry about that, but we're going to take this episode and go through them. Um, and and there's a lot of, I think, interesting, topical and overarching stuff to talk about. So the first thing that I just want to point out uh, before we get into the questions is a really interesting piece of news, which I will um, link to in the show notes, which is that um, Nancy Mace who is a freshman uh, congresswoman um, and a Republican and dropped the, you know, her own version um, of a cannabis legalization bill, which would be, you know, much more, let's say, friendly to the industry and much more hands off for the government. Um, that obviously caused a big rally for the industry in November when she presented the bill. Um, so the interesting, interesting thing that's happening right now is she's running for reelection in 2022 and part of that process is there will be a primary um, in in the early part of this year. And so there'll be a Republican primary where um, she faces off against a challenger. And this is where it gets kind of interesting is that um, I guess Nancy Mace was one of the first Republicans to uh, you know, admit that Donald Trump lost the election and uh, Donald Trump not so happy with that. And so he has come <laughs> out aggressively supporting her opponent, her Republican opponent, for the primary. Um, and, and this is a really fascinating article for a couple of reasons. So one, 
Um, you know, Trump is is back, right? You thought he was dead. He ain't dead. He's he's back and he's <laughs> he's in the political scene again. And that signals to me he's going to play um, a meaningful role in the 2022 elections. Um, and maybe he's setting something up, hoping to set something up for 2024. But then secondly, uh, I think this is going to be a super interesting litmus test of how, you know, the GOP views cannabis, because, you know, in this primary, it, it's going to be, um, you know, pr- probably really brutal where they, you know, go at each other and attack each other, um, the, the two, you know, primary candidates. Um, and obviously, Nancy Mace has this easy thing to attack her for, which is that she's a champion of cannabis. So there's going to be a political calculation here, which is asking um, from the GOP side, does it make sense to attack her on her pro-cannabis stance? Or do we feel that even among a primary of you know more conservative base Republicans – um, it's not a good idea to attack her for this because maybe, you know, um, a lot of our people are in favor of it. So that to me is going to be a really, really interesting development that will happen over the next few months. Yeah. And, uh, when we were right before this episode, we were just, uh, or right before this recording, we were just going over it. And, um, you know, my, my, my biggest takeaway from this was how often Trump was mentioned, and the impact that Trump still has in politics. That was like my kind of mm-hmm. takeaway. And when I talked to you, you're like, well, you know, what do you think about um, the whole cannabis angle? And I don't know. I don't see this as being as monumental. And, you know, I could be biting my words in a, like in November. This could be the the, the piece, the, the article that sort of blew the lid off of cannabis. But I don't know. I, I don't see this as like the the, the end all be all for, for cannabis. I think I think you said it the best there to watch it closely, um, you know. I, I really don't think the the Republicans are going to come out and bash uh, Nancy Mace against cannabis uh, because mm-hmm. they're again you know we've talked about this in isolation to just um, that election then maybe but like the whole Republican Party I don't know I I, I think we're grasping at straws on this one yeah so um, obviously you're wrong but that's okay but. <laughs> Oh, Those aren't okay. straws you're grasping. <laughs> no, Those but are, listen, yeah. first of all, um, I, you know, we'll put this out to our political correspondent, JP, and see what his two cents are. But why I think this is interesting is, is I mean, first of all, it's going to be really interesting to see strategically if they choose to attack her on cannabis. And mm-hmm. if, if they don't, that, you know, like right now in every campaign, they're sitting in a war room mapping out what can we attack our opponent on to differentiate ourselves, right? And so- if somebody was ever going to attack somebody on cannabis, I mean, Nancy Mace is probably the perfect person to do it because she's been a champion for it on the right, right? So mm-hmm. in the Republican primary, if they choose not to attack her, that will show you something, that they they made the strategic decision not to attack her. If they choose to attack her on cannabis, then we'll see how it plays out, right? And, um, you know, Trump was always actually very neutral on cannabis. He... Uh, you know, he was a New Yorker, so obviously he kind of understood the popularity of it, but uh, never really came out for it, never came out against it, stayed very quiet on the topic. Um, Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida and who, you know, could really be a favorite in 2024 on the Republican side, he's been pretty neutral as well, except recently he came out and said, you know, yeah, I can't, we shouldn't be locking cannabis, uh, we shouldn't be locking people up for cannabis, but... Uh, I don't want to legalize it because I don't like the smell. (laughs) 
Has so, he heard of odorless cannabis? Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Big big time for an ad there, right? Yeah. Uh, but but so why that's super interesting to me is because they've done the calculus and they've decided that uh, it's not something we're going to attack, not something that we want to be on the wrong side of, but we don't want to be on the right side of it either, right? We're, mm-hmm. We don't want to be in favor of it. We're going to be sort of loosely against it. That's well, the calculus. Think- I, I think they're staying silent to see how it actually does, right? If more and more people, um, if more and more states flip, like what, 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 like what, what do they have to lose, right? But by if they attack mm-hmm. cannabis, then they have something to lose. Yeah, that's and that's a fair point. But remember, in in these primary elections, they are vicious. You are always looking for ways to tag your opponent, right? And mm-hmm. Nancy Mesa is actually doing something really interesting, which. Um, you know, she has to walk a fine line here because, you know, Donald Trump is, again, in the article, he very pointedly says she's an idiot. She's terrible. This and that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's not going to attack Donald Trump. I think she's going to walk a very fine line because the formula for winning on the right seems to be you have to be able to attract Trump's base and you also need to be able to attract people in the middle. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's why I come back to DeSantis. Um, I think he's done a really good job of that, of kind of of being um, in in Trump's camp, um, but then also being more moderate on other things, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think this will be a really interesting data point uh, to see how it plays out. Uh, you know, June 14th, I believe, is the primary date. So we'll see. Uh, hopefully she wins. If not, this would be a huge blow to the cannabis industry. Uh, and it would it would just show you on the on the local level that even very popular issues, um, can still be unpopular, you know, in your district. Uh, and and remember, Mitch McConnell has often made fun of the Democrats for, um, uh, you know, inserting cannabis in certain bills. But if you notice, he never attacks safe banking or, you know, legalization. He always attacks, you know, the the smaller kind of fringe elements of like, you know, do, spending money to do a study on on um, racial disparity or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that kind of just shows you if they're going to attack it, how they go after it, right? And the parts that they have to attack. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it's you know, as a republic, as like the Republican for, for uh, sorry, <laughs> for the Republican Party, it's really difficult to attack something that's adding tax dollars and adding money and jobs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I but ten years ago, it wouldn't have been that difficult, right? They could just kind of laugh it off or say, "Look, this guy wants yeah. to get your kids high, and I want to do whatever," right? Yeah, 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 but it's it's a different landscape now, is what I'm trying to say. Totally, right? there's a lot like a lot more states have legalized. The sentiment has changed quite a bit. Canada's mm-hmm. fully legalized. Um, and know. remember, but remember, South Carolina. I mean, I don't, I don't even believe South Carolina has a medical program. Oh, I thought you were going to say I don't even think South Carolina knows where Canada is. <laughs> well, can't blame them for that. But but when you look at, um, you know, when when Mace released her bill, uh, the South Carolina Republican Party, like the official party release something, I can't remember exactly what it was, but denouncing her saying we don't support any cannabis legalization or something like that. So mm-hmm. um, it will be really interesting to see how that plays out. And I really hope she wins. Um, last point is she did a long form interview um, with Aaron Edelheit um, that I'll post. I actually haven't listened to it yet, but uh, that's actually a priority for me now is to is to watch that interview and, and see how this develops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. First question, Alyssa from New York. Um, Alyssa had actually written in think uh, a little while back and I think she had just gotten her medical card in New York and was talking about um, the program there. Um, so she is uh, writing in about a very big story that I'm sure people have have heard about, which is that uh, New York just approved a um, a new law, I guess, 
um, which will see the first 200 retail licenses be awarded to essentially social equity applicants who have marijuana convictions. Um, so Alyssa's first thought was, wow, that's really great. You know, the governor wants to create a $200 million fund to support them. Like, this is awesome. Um, but then she started thinking, you know, this is great on paper, but how realistic is it? Right. So the idea being that um, it's not easy, for example, to get space. Right. It's going to be hard for, um, you know, these social equity operators to even, you know, get a lease and, and start up and get capital. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Alyssa says, look, I love the concept, right? And I'll be a customer at these facilities. I'll support them however I can. Um, I'm just worried that the program's going to fall on its face and it's going to be really difficult the same way California has been really difficult for these social equity programs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll just kick it off and I'll say, look, I, I think I think Alyssa's done a really good job of nailing kind of uh, the core issues here, which is that the program sounds great um, and maybe it will be great, but uh, you know, and 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 by the way, if you look at just sort of the social media reaction that it's had, and I don't mean, you know, people like us who are in the industry. I mean, just average everyday people on Twitter who just see a headline and just you know retweet it. Um, this has gotten probably some of the most positive press and some of the widest positive press of anything I can remember recently. So it just goes, Abby, to to a point that you had mentioned earlier uh, when we were talking about the hemp growers that. The politicians, you know, really care. Obviously, they care about you know doing good, but they, they care about getting you know the recognition um, from the people about hey, what a good job you've done here. This program is great, mm-hmm. right? And just you know, I, I had talked to somebody uh, a while ago who worked for a government agency, um, not in cannabis, and and he was mentioning that you know they they announced like this big two hundred million dollar program to fund uh, minority and and women entrepreneurs. And he's like, you know, when we announced that, we got all this praise and every, you get a hundred news articles written about mm-hmm. us. And he goes, you know, but nobody ever comes and checks later to see how successful the program was. You know, did <laughs> we true. actually give out $200 million or did we only fund 50 million? Right. So he's like, there's a lot of, you know, one of the problems I think of society at large is there's a lot of, you know, everyone gets really excited about the headline and everyone feels good about sharing it, but there's little accountability about how these things actually work. And of course, they're extremely complicated to actually pull off. Yeah, for sure. And you know, one one thing that I've, um, <clears throat> as, as you were saying this, I, I was thinking about it. It's that uh, a lot of these politicians they love the inception of these programs, mm-hmm. but they don't really care too much about the execution of these programs. Right. Right. And we don't see it. Uh, we we've seen this time after time. Like it's 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 literally a headline grab. Um, and a program like this, I think uh, Alyssa hit it the best on the head when she said that is it going to turn out to something to be something like California. Um, you know, I, I don't know how that's going to obviously work out, but one thing that I can forecast seeing is delays, right? For and, you sure. Know, Hirsch has been on here talking about, you know, um, looking at a market that did really well, which was Arizona, and why did they do so well? It wasn't because it was delay. It was sorry, it wasn't because um, of anything that like that you one thing that you put your finger on. But he said if he had to put his finger on something, it was their speed to market as opposed right. to getting it right. You know, and um, you know what, what do delays really do? They just fuel the black market. Sure, that's a good point, and. And and so look, Illinois, for example, had the most progressive equity program ever announced when they signed it. Mm-hmm. But now, I think what two three years later, uh, the execution has been so horrendous it actually looks bad on everyone involved, right? Because those social equity applicants, those licenses, those are the next round of retail licenses, have just been delayed and delayed and delayed, and there's still no line of sight on if they will open 
this year, 2022, Mm -hmm. right? Three years later. Um, So, you know, this New York thing could have the same effect, right? The difference between that, you know, that government funding program that my friend was telling me about versus this is that, you know, eventually these stores will open and then the, you know, whoever um, is the owner of the store will be the face of this program. And Mm -hmm. so let me give you the ways in which this, this could really be a problem. So for example, they said in this article that they think the first stores could open in 2022. And I would be amazed if those pro if those stores open in 22. I think there's a good chance the stores don't even open until 2024. And the reason I'm saying that is, first of all, how are you going to give out these licenses, right? Mm-hmm. Are you going to do applications and scoring, right? Because that means now you have to give people time to do the applications. You got to score the applications. You have to award them. Um, and then you have to have the lawsuits and people have to fight about them. Uh, and then also, if you have a, a scoring application system as opposed to like, let's say, a lottery, uh, the people who are really good at winning license applications will figure out how to win some of these 200. Yeah. yeah right now. Exactly. The good thing is you have to have somebody from New York on here. Um, but look, from an optics perspective, we know what people want here. People want black and brown entrepreneurs who have been wronged by drug laws to be the ones who benefit. Right. But the thing is, in law, you cannot write a law which says that only people with this skin color can win. Right. It's it. I think they've actually tried that and it's been overturned, even in states where they say, um, you know, you have to be a resident of the state, like in Missouri. Those Mm -hmm. things have been overturned. So you Mm -hmm. can write a very well-intentioned law and we understand what you're trying to accomplish. But ultimately, um, at the end of the day, the people who get and open those 200 stores uh, you, they might still not be who you wanted them to be. And then this again, turns around on the regulators in the industry and it creates, you know, it, it can create a lot of backlash for what was mm-hmm. supposed to be well-intentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think you said it the best there. If they do do a license application process or even a lottery system, there are people whose sole purpose in life, they make money off doing this is just writing applications. They will figure out uh, whether you want to use the term loopholes or they'll figure out workaround, compliant workarounds is one that I've heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Quite compliant a few times. workarounds. Com- compliant workarounds. Yeah. They will figure those out. And, um, you know, ultimately the license, the, like you said it the best, right? Um, there's going to be delays. And I think if, even if they do get the 200 licenses out right up right away, it's like, well, what about the lawsuits that follow shortly after? Right. Yeah. And, and you can still issue the licenses and just continue with the lawsuit separately. That is a, mm-hmm. a possibility. Um, now the, the good thing in this, I will say though, um, is there will finally be some pressure on the state to speed up, uh, adult use because now it's not the big MSOs who are getting hurt. Now it's these social equity applicants. And, no, like right. nobody, whether it's cannabis or otherwise, nobody cries for a big company, right? Nobody cares. It's not a sexy story to say that, you know, it's hurting um, MSOs that you're not turning New Jersey on faster, right? In mm-hmm. fact, people, mm-hmm. if they write that story, the politicians look good because they look like they're not, you know, helping big business. Um, but yeah. now when you get, you know, social equity involved, it becomes a different story. Right. For um, sure. But For you know, sure. I, I do worry about how it's rolled out. I worry about um, people getting started. Also, like this $200 million fund they're creating, uh, part of it's going to be funded, by the way, by charging the 10 MSOs a fee. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's part of it. But it's supposed to be a public private fund, meaning 
the companies that they're giving the money into should be able to make money. Well, um, you know, what does that mean for enforcement, right? I mean, are you going to be shutting down the companies who are not playing by the rules, who don't have licenses, right? I mean, it, how is that going to work? And, mm-hmm. you know, what if on day one of this, you know, of launching the actual stores, now just just kind of walk with me. Imagine everybody who won those 200 licenses um, are, you know, are white who have previous convictions. Okay. And mm-hmm. imagine that people who got shut out of it open up illicit stores, right? In that case, how does the optics play out, right? If you're shutting down minority entrepreneurs who didn't get to win a license and then other people um, are opening stores and making, you know, at least are being perceived to make a ton of money, right? People don't actually know how much you make because they don't understand 280E and stuff like that. Uh, but that again becomes an optics problem. So I, I think all of this has a very good intention. I'm, I am hesitant to see how it actually plays out. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, last question is, oh, sorry, la- last point on that is I would just say that um, the state did mention in there that they might have a sweetener, like the state leases the store and then I guess pays for the rent or something. Um, so I, I don't know, a lot of the devil's in the details here. We have to see how this rolls out. Yeah. Well, the one thing I will say um, that I like about that I like, really like about this program is that they're thinking about the funding and the capital requirements, right? They're not just yes. saying, hey, here, listen, this is a social equity applicant. Um, here's your license. Go run free, right? Right, right. That's a good point. They're thinking through the the various steps of it, um, but ultimately, I, I will say that this two hundred million dollar fund, it like, is it going to be sort of a government grant where you're just giving people money, or is it the idea that's an investment? You know, if it's public private, there has to be some profitability element to it too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you want the business to be profitable, then you need the licenses to be limited, and you need to enforce against illegal operators. That's the only yeah. way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, moving on. Um, and and by the way, Alyssa, it would be great to hear from you updates since you're on the ground in New York as things develop over time. Um, okay, moving on. Alex sent us an email in early January, and um, he mentioned that IIPR looked like it was selling off while MSOS was going up. Uh, so I actually tracked these two just to see, and um, he was right. It looked like there was a divergence uh, where you know IIPR was softer compared to MSOS, and that gap is pretty much closed in the last few months. Um, so. I don't know how related they are. I wouldn't assume it's the same investor base. Like one is a REIT that pays a dividend and the other is like speculative equity. So I, I don't know if that's a, I could draw a straight line between the two, to be honest with you. Yeah, for um, sure. And, and Manish, that, that's a good point. I mean, <clears throat> to Alex, uh, what I would say is, you know, Alan Broxton talks about this a lot. It's like the casino floor. You got to remember, we're not the only game or sector in mm-hmm. town, right? Um, just because one is selling off to, uh, does not mean the money is staying within the sector. And then you just talked about the the actual fundamental differences between the two. Um, some people could be going into IIPR because it, because it is a REIT, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. they might not even care that it's cannabis. Yeah, it's a great point, right? That's absolutely a great point. Um, okay. Uh, another question he had was, big LPs in Canada rapid lo- rapidly losing market share. Smaller companies are benefiting. Um, Oxley has been a big beneficiary of this. So, uh, I would say actually in the landscape of Canada, I would still consider Oxley a big company, right? It's public. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it, it has access to, you know, all kinds of financing. Um, one of the things that really kind of uh, annoys me is the fact that people spend so much time on this industry, you know, they write these thought pieces or whatever, but a lot of people just don't go look. They don't go look at what's happening every day. Now, 
you know, I haven't been invested in Canada for some time, but you know, I live in Ontario and I'm a consumer. Um, so I'm on the OCS all the time, right? I'm in the dispensaries all the time and anybody paying attention for like over a year, like I would even say up in, up in 2020 could see that this was coming. Um, you know, early days, the LPs were very dominant in terms of the selections available on, on the Ontario cannabis store. And then mm-hmm. you started to see that change as more, um, as more companies came online. And then it got to a point in 2020 where it was like the LPs were almost non-existent on there. Right. And back to this idea of big business, small business, um, it wasn't like considered cool to be promoting a big brand. Right. So uh, more actually the OCS was promoting craft brands, if anything. So mm-hmm. um, this has been happening for a while and people really haven't been talking about it. And and it's weird to me that it's like a big surprise, but um, I think the, a big learning lesson here is that the public markets do not always represent an industry. So just because you think cannabis is going to grow in, in a certain market, it doesn't mean the pubcos are the best way to be in that trade because the mm-hmm. private companies could be sucking up a lot of the share, which is what's happening in Canada. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, if you look if you look closely, cl- really closely at, at the uh, the Canadian market, and lo- if you look at more like metropolitan areas, in like for example in Toronto or even the GTA, um, we do love our craft stuff, right? <laughs> whether it's beer, no, I'm, I'm dead serious. Whether it's beer, whether it's like food, um, you know, there's like a pride in buying things that are like artisanal in Canada. And that's certainly though. I think that's the wave in general um, when you look at you know whatever, whether it's big cities or, or just in general, like how people feel, people like supporting local craft, you know, sort of entrepreneurs, whereas, you know, big companies, except for maybe like a Coca-Cola, I don't think big companies are seen as very cool. Um, so I, I think that's a trend that uh, is playing out and it's also affecting our industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think another thing in Canada, so the, the follow-up question goes, well, what does this mean for the U.S.? And it's a good question, I, I, and I don't know. I think maybe Canada is unique because the companies never really went vertical, so they were big growers, but they didn't get involved that big on the retail side, except for like you know Canopy, Tokyo Smoke. Um, but Canada was also really overcapitalized, right? There was just too much money flowing into a really small, highly regulated industry. So it's really mm-hmm. hard to say. Um, and and maybe cannabis is meant to be fragmented, like in California, in Canada. Maybe it's more like wine than beer where, you know, there's, uh, sorry, more like wine than spirits where, um, you know, people sort of buy a different thing all the time and there's, there's no one winner. Um, and, and there's a, a lot of companies, but nobody really makes any money. Um, yeah, and that's good. Oh, I was going to say, and like, and using your wine and spirits uh, analogy, there's like trends, right? Um, like live rosin right now is pretty huge. I'm seeing that in every single website that I, that I look into. Right. Um, one, one thing that, uh, Seishu who's been on here had said to me that's resonated really well is that he felt that cannabis was going to be more like the restaurant industry. And Mm -hmm. so his whole thing was that like, you know, even if you have large MSOs, if you can't market and capture market share in a local market, um, your brand might just not be relevant there. Mm. Right. Um, again, cause you know, we I always look at cookies or Stizzy or, or so some of the, some of the bigger brands and I was like hey like what, what do you think of these and he's like yeah but like you know how much market share do they really have where are they where are they actually growing obviously it's local because you can't go through state lines um, and that really got me thinking and I see this happening a lot more in Canada and you know further to what you were saying about um, we're not releasing the LP products on there anymore we're seeing more craft 
uh, products that are that are out there. Um, going back to that whole restaurant analogy, if you look at you know dietary preferences between people in like the Northeast versus people in California versus people in Florida versus people in like Canada, Midwest, it's drastically different. There are some chains, obviously right. like McDonald's, whatever, that do sort of cater to everyone, but they spend hundreds of they spend billions of dollars in advertising, right? Um, but most companies don't do that. You're making a good point, right? That there's and, and like even a, a McDonald's or a Coca-Cola, I mean, they've had, you know, whatever, they 50, have local 100 menus, years. But they also have local brands. and they also have local menus. Right, right. So that's it's a fair point that regionality will matter, right? That that certain things in certain regions will do better. Mm-hmm. Um, that's 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 a very fair point. But I think also the flip side is, you know, right now, and, and Abby, I know you've lived through this a little bit recently. It is so hard to raise capital in this industry. <laughs> uh, like the, if you think it's bad in the public markets, like the private markets have been sucked dry, and the private. Um, entrepreneurs just haven't adjusted their valuation. They're like, I don't care. I'm not, you know, cutting my valuation in half just because, well, you know, GTI yeah. is down. Yeah. You, you can't cut your valuation in half, right? Cause you, in, in most cases, like you're giving up so much already. I uh, don't get me wrong. There are some valuations that are, that are, out, uh, that are outrageous, but in, in most cases, like, you know, um, so sorry, but you're, you're right. I have lived through this recently. And what am I doing right now? I've, I've literally got a tin cut that I rattle <laughs> on my way to work. Just, just, just to see if somebody will throw something in there. Um, it's been absolutely brutal. I've never seen anything this bad before. Uh, I thought like late 2019 was bad. This is just a whole, no, a whole other level. And, um, and talk about that. Why, why is it so bad? Why, if you have a deal that you think is a fair deal, are, are private investors ultimately just saying, no, I, I don't want to write a check into this in cannabis, well, I'm saying. Well, so, so that, that, that's a really great question. First of all, you said private investors, right? Mm-hmm. The investor pool in cannabis is so small. There really isn't a private investor. It's a private okay. or a public investor, right? Like you're, you're dealing, it's the same pot that you're dealing with. Okay. Right. Most venture funds in cannabis also invest in public, like public, publicly traded companies. So, having said that, you're now competing with a GTI, a Verano, a Truly, where their cash flowing, their state of the art operators, and they offer liquidity. Right. They're a known entity. They're a known entity. Exactly. They they're from from a cannabis perspective. I would say they are the most de-risked investments. Right. And so, you know, how do you, how, what type of premium does that command? Well, in some cases, like it's, they're so undervalued that people, that it's really difficult for a private, for a, a private company to, to make any compelling point, right? Because there's always that, well, what, like A, you guys are e-liquid, B, you're going to have to tap the ma- uh, markets again and see how are you going to prove this? Like, show me that you can prove this business model out. And even if you have proven this business, this, this business model out, they still, there's still something, there's still some hair on the deal, right? And then now couple the fact, again, going back to Alan Brockstein's analogy of that, we're not the only game in town, that there's tons of other tables uh, at this casino. Mm-hmm. You're competing with other sectors, right? So your typical high risk asset class, like cowboy gunslinger type investor is mm-hmm. not looking at cannabis. Our, our people, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, well, yeah. I don't, I don't know if they're still here, but um, yeah, that's right. They moved on. Yeah, they've moved on. They're now in gold, or they're in NFTs. It's just like commodities, oil, commodities, whatever. something, right? Because there's other sectors. So now, not only are you competing with these world class MSOs, you're now competing with other sectors that have more catalysts, that have more upside, more perceived upside potential 
than let's say a private cannabis company. Right. Right. Like it's not that sexy to hear, Hey, I've got, you know, a private single state operator that's going to be doing X number of millions of dollars in end of 2024. Right. It's like, yeah, so what? Yeah. Right. Right. It's, it's, and, and, you know, to your point, like there was a deal that we looked at that we really liked, like awesome operator, a good state. Um, and, uh, it's like, look by 20 end of 23, we'll be, you know, at this valuation will be five to six times EBITDA. Right. But it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. so, so I invest in you today. You take all this risk, you pull it off. You guys are awesome. We get five to six times EBITDA for next year. You know, the, the publics are not that far off, right? Like a Verano does probably trade pretty close to that. Um, and depending on the day, you know, the, the other guys get somewhat close, right? Um, so there's not that incentive to jump into the privates. Typically, when private deals do really well, it's when the publics are ripping and mm-hmm. it goes, hey, invest in this private today. We'll go public in, you know, as fast as we can. And if you look at the ARB between public and private, you know, we're whatever, we're two times or something. So that's the pop you're going to get. Yeah. And then the one, one other point that I want to add is a lot of the, uh, investors who are good friends of mine that I've talked to and they've candidly said to me like and I said well like what are you guys buying are you guys buying like the Verano's GTIs and they say no we're not even buying those because there's no there's no catalyst right now mm-hmm. that makes such a compelling argument for us to to get in there today like we've we've made our bets we're down a little bit we're not really adding to it too much if it gets re-rated we might break even like they'll they'll do more than break even uh if it does get re-rated but they're, they're, right. they're we're just not adding to our position right now right they can't stomach more allocation. exactly Exactly. And so it's like, now you're dealing with a shrinking investor pool and investor and investor appetite is going. Right. So it's like, you know, that tin cup is starting to look real good. (laughs) So, so to round out the question here, the reason I bring that up is that, um, you know, you ask, what does this mean for the U S well, right now it's really hard to raise capital for these deals. Right. So, um, now maybe, you know, on the growing side, you can do sale lease back or whatever, whatever, but, uh, it, it's it's getting harder and harder to raise equity so that we're not in a Canada situation where Canada had an, uh, basically unlimited pool of capital go into the country. Um, you know, these this the barriers to entry are going up, not down in general for the industry as capital gets harder. And, and Alex's last question is, when do the LPs face a serious cash crunch? Um, and it's a great question. Honestly, I'm surprised more of them haven't gone broke already. And so there's two takeaways from that. One is that companies are very scrappy downwards. You know, they find ways to drag things out and, you know, delay paying their Mm -hmm. rent or their taxes or whatever. Um, And the second is that I think just COVID funding, there's been so much money kind of flying around for companies, uh, especially in Canada. I think that's really helped these companies um, kind of, you know, be able to stop themselves from going broke. But, you know, you look at, look, look at the financials of like a Village Farms, Oxley, a Valance, uh, and these are the companies that are doing it the best and they're losing money hand over fist typically. Right. Or mm-hmm. like, you know, maybe struggling just to break even on EBITDA or something like it, it's, it, this is unsustainable. So um, I do think there'll be a shakeout. I just, I don't know how it's going to play out. I haven't made any investments in Canada recently uh, or even like probably in the last two years. So I, I don't know. 
Yeah. And and you said it the best about when companies getting scrappy when they go down, right? Like you can always cut costs, management can stop taking salaries, you can borrow money. In most mm-hmm. cases, if you were a good company at one point, you probably have a credit facility that you can tap into. You can tap into that credit facility. If you have cash on your balance sheet or assets that you can put up as collateral, there is venture debt that's out there. Right. Um, there, like, you know, you can get creative in your financing. Uh, and if it's just a short-term loan that you need to hold you over until something big comes, I mean, you know, I, I, I've seen this from a lot of companies that I invested in in early 2018, 2019, um, exactly. And how long they were able to stretch themselves out. And, uh, you know, in, in some cases they've bounced back, but in most cases they haven't. Right. And it's just, you know, and they've even come back asking for capital. And I'm just, you know, it's like, Hey, look, we gave you money early on. You didn't prove out the business model or it's not that the management did anything wrong. It's just that, Hey, the business environment is very different than it was previously. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's hard to say, but yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's a calling of LPs that's happening. Um, I'm just surprised it hasn't happened faster, honestly. So, uh, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, actually, he had a couple more questions, which I'll also touch on. So Alex asked about Curaleaf um, and the valuation on Curaleaf. And uh, so, so Cura has been getting hit, hit pretty hard recently, a lot more so than the other companies because of, you know, uh, basically associations with Russia, um, whether that's right or wrong. And um, th- this is a tough one. You know, I've, I've looked at Curaleaf many times. I used to be really negative on it. I warmed up a lot more to it. Um you know, it's gone down a lot, but at the same time, the valuation is still pretty significant. Uh, you know, it it has uh, just over 700 million shares outstanding. And I'll just check the price right now so I don't get it wrong. It's about six bucks US. So, you know, just over 4 billion, call it 4.2 billion of uh, market cap. And I think they're guiding to, you know, sub 500 million of, of EBITDA this year. So, um, you know, trading at eight times, eight times plus roughly, um, you know, not the best operators, but clearly working on it. Um, and this Russia sentiment, right or wrong, looks like it's getting worse, not better with no end in sight. So that's also a challenge. Um, I will say a couple of positive things in their favor is, you know, New Jersey will be an absolutely monster driver for them. They seem like from everyone I've talked to, they seem like they're really well set up to dominate in New Jersey. And the other thing is, you know, Boris has talked for a while now about this extraction technology that's proprietary to them. Um, it's called the the ACE extraction. And uh, still, nobody really knows what it is. Um, but they've shared a little bit more detail, which is that it's a solventless uh, extraction machine, which can be done at scale and ha- gives them a cost advantage. Mm-hmm. Now, I thought it would be a distillate machine, right? Put cannabis in, get distillate out, use that for your vapes and gummies. Um it looks like actually it's not a distillate machine. It actually makes, uh, helps makes, um, like for example, live rosin products. So they just announced that they dropped live rosin pens in Florida that which came from this proprietary extraction. That's actually a lot better than I thought mm-hmm. um, because you know that is the future of the industry, right? Live rosin, live resin, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So if they figured out a way to do that kind of quality at scale, uh, that's really, really impressive. So I don't have a strong opinion on this. Um, but I could easily see from a short-term perspective them benefiting a lot uh, once New Jersey turns and once people stop freaking out about the Russia side. So um, I don't know, but we'll definitely spend some time on it when we do the uh, the Q4 review with Nick. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question is, 
will U.S. MSOs do M&A in this environment when their stock prices are depressed? And it's a really interesting question. Um, certainly, you could see more cash type deals where you take on debt and then you know buy the operator out in cash. Um, I think it also makes M and A more possible from the standpoint that the operators are also struggling. The small operators are struggling. Um, you know, price compression is hurting them as well, right? Um, they they maybe don't have an exit in sight and they want to sell to a public company. Um, mm-hmm. And the lower stock price means more upside for them, right? So um, the the challenge is just a lot of the private operators are very stubborn and don't want to drop their price. So we can all understand that. Um, and I, I do think what is interesting is that as this sort of uh, downturn goes on longer, there's more of an impetus on mid-tier companies to get more creative and start merging up together. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. like there's a, a you know a rumor and, and credit to uh, betting bruiser for the rumor that um, Air and Columbia Care might merge, right? Which is yeah. which is not an obvious merger, but it could be an interesting one and and make them you know help them get into that that top five top six category. Yeah, for sure. And acquisitions, like I think you, you touched on it earlier there. Um, nobody wants to sell when their valuations are at this at this level, uh, you know. And if you look at you know who usually gets acquired, or not, we're not talking about mergers here. We're talking about more like pure acquisitions who usually gets acquired it's like companies that have defensible market shares uh in markets right. like this right and you know if you have a defensible market share and a low valuation you're probably thinking well i could probably weather the storm so i'm not going to sell at this price right that's a very fair point mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's a good point and and actually going back to that social equity question from Alyssa, um one of the things that somebody pointed out to me is like look there's a lot of excitement around opening up these businesses but then once they actually open them, and it's really, really difficult, right? Because it's such a regulated industry. Um, and then they, after 2AE, they realize they're not making any money. They might be losing money. Then a lot of them want to turn around and actually sell to MSOs as their exit. Uh, so is that even allowed? It depends, right? So in in um, Illinois, absolutely. Um, in mass, uh, it doesn't look like it. You have to keep at least 51% minority ownership uh, over time. Right. Mm -hmm. So again, like we'll learn a lot more on how these regulations play out. Like if an MSO, for example, was to go buy a social equity um, operator, can they just buy one and they have one store and they're done? Right. Or, you know, how does it work? Right. We really don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But so so M&A can come in a lot of places. What I would say is when there's pain in an industry, you know, we see it in the large operators, but um, it's very likely happening as well on the smaller operators. So I do think there will be M&A. I think the hard part is figuring out valuations. Um, and I think the other hard part is just from an absolute perspective, like, um, you know, like for example, with Columbia Care and Air, it kind of makes sense because both of the valuations are depressed. So you don't really, you know, it's really more of a true merger than just an acquisition because mm-hmm. the the acquisition company goes, oh, my valuation is too low. I'm not doing this. With a merger, both of our stocks are cheap, so we combine ourselves and and hopefully get re-rated as we're bigger. Yeah, yeah, it'd be more, um, it would be strategic and synergistic, right? Right, exactly. And and so I think it's definitely possible. It just depends how things play out. If we don't get any kind of safe movement in the next couple of months, and we go more into the summer, you know, into the new year, um, then I think you'll see a lot more people capitulate and do kind of creative M and A to to get it going. Mm-hmm. So. Um, next question is from Mark C. Uh, it was actually directed towards Hirsch, but you know, he's not here, so too bad. Uh, so, so uh, it <laughs> was around. Long, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He'll he'll be back soon. So, yeah. um, it was about 
uh, the fact that you guys did a, an interview um, and you guys didn't mention Harborside. And uh, Harborside did a roll-up, acquired um, Loudpack, which I think is closed now. Or sorry, I think Urban Leaf is closed. And I don't know if Loudpack is closed yet. But the new company will be called Stateside Holdings. And Mark was asking, you know, is this going to be a clear acquisition target for MSOs? Or is this just going to be another, you know, all hype and just a bust? Um, and the first thing I want to point out is I don't think Abby and I really have a good handle on Harborside or honestly the California market. Mm-hmm. That's why we always uh, bring Hirsch on to talk more and more about it. I mean, <laughs> if, I, if I've learned anything from Hirsch, right, because we, we talk quite a bit. Um, look, anything's game in, in California, right? Like a lot of people are building companies out in California to be an attractive acquisition for an MSO. Is that the case with this? Like Manish said, we have no idea. So I'll just run you through a very high level. I just did a little bit of work on it. Um, and I, I had a call with the company. So I'm just, I haven't double checked any of this, but this is just kind of the numbers I had after that call. It's apparently about 235 million shares pro forma after all the acquisitions. The company trades at about 60 cents US. So it's $150 million equity value. I don't remember the sales numbers, but I think they were projecting like north of a hundred once the companies all combined and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's say there's another, you know, fifty million of net debt because they've got some cash, they've got this Polaris debt, they have to pay the IRS a big number. So, um, you know, look, I mean, certainly it sounds relatively cheap if if you're all in around two hundred and you're doing over a hundred of sales. Um, but I think. Any unlimited license state, whether it's, you know, so Michigan, for example, with Gage, uh, you know, people got really excited about Gage because, you know, they were a really flashy company, solid on operation. So I, I looked at them a couple of times, um, real, real operators, but a really tough market. And mm-hmm. it's just hard to figure out how to value that because in the short to medium term, you're going to lose money basically as far as the eye can see. And companies are really careful about their margins. They're really careful about cash flow. Um, it's just hard to understand if you buy, you know, Harbor side or state side when they, when they wrap it up, you know, mm-hmm. what are you really getting, right? You're sure you're getting a leading California platform, but if you're losing money on that platform, what's the benefit, you know, like every dollar is so precious right now. So yeah. um, I think we're going to have to sit back and see how this acquisition plays out and I think the MSOs are the same way. I don't think anyone's going to take a big swing um, in an unlimited license state until they can really demonstrate success. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so I think with this acquisition, we're going to have to wait and see how it plays out. It'll probably be really messy to start, but can they can they um, write the ship and can it really start to perform? And if it can, then somebody will come and buy it. Um, but I would I would say two things. One, don't expect it to be soon. And two, don't expect it to be a huge premium necessarily, depending on how this shakes out. And three, I would also be careful on this because anybody in Loudpack or Urban Leaf has been in a private California deal for a long time. And, you know, in the in the 12 or 18 months what they're able to sell, you could easily see people start to push a sale, uh, start to sell their shares, right? So the mm-hmm. stock can really get hammered in the near term once those shares unlock. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So on to the next question, we have Rick D and uh, this is sort of related. And, and Rick is asking about the company Next Green Wave, which we had talked about a couple times, small uh, premium California grower, which is a public company. 
he said, you know, now it's been acquired by Planet 13. That deal is done. So congratulations to everybody there. Uh, so why did we like this one? You know, what did we we see in this? And and, and basically, um, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about, uh, you know, what are the opportunities that we might be missing, right? So, okay, we all figure out that Illinois and Florida and Pennsylvania are great markets, right? Um, but ultimately, you know, what about Michigan? What about California, right? So I love mm-hmm. looking for small public companies that are single state, and they give you a really good barometer of what's happening in that state. So mm-hmm. Gage, for example, I thought, hey, these guys are probably one of the best, if not the best in Michigan, and they seem really dominant. So when I saw their financials and saw that they were having trouble making money, even though they were selling you know, super high quality eights at a very strong price, I said, okay, if that's the case, I don't think anybody can make money in Michigan, right? Right or wrong, I don't know, but that was my take on it. So Next Green Wave was really interesting because somebody introduced me to them and here were these guys out in the middle of nowhere putting out like, I can't remember now, but it was like, you know, 40, 50% EBITDA margins and real cash flow. And that was that was pretty fascinating to me. And, and to be honest, I actually didn't believe it for the longest time. Um, and I spent a lot of time get, to get to know the team. Um, and, you know, what I found was that they were focusing on the high quality product and getting really good efficiencies out of their facility. Um, and so that's how they were able to achieve really high margins and, and real cash flow generative um, activity. And it was a real bootstrap business. So they were very tight with money. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, and well, they actually helped me learn through 2020, the power of quality cannabis over just value. Right. And, and that really helped me understand the, the power of premium indoor cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always thought it was a good acquisition target because the multiple makes sense because it's, it's cash flow generative. It wasn't a huge valuation and you're getting growing expertise and genetics and, and absorbing that into an MSO. Um, so, you know, they're part of planet 13 now, and I'm really excited to see what these guys will do with planet 13, Florida. I think that will be a really interesting test um, to see how they perform in a limited license state. Yeah, and and weren't weren't Next Green Wave when uh, when you had introduced them to me? Weren't they uh, self funded as well? Yeah, so so that was one thing I always look at, right? With companies, is what's their funding history over the last you know whatever two years, right? How many shares do they issue? Um, do they take on really toxic debt? Have they done a sale leaseback, right? And a lot of times, the the companies that I find that are gems are the ones where People think, you know, they're crappy or don't look at them. Um, but when you dig into them, you know, they're not. There's something there. And how a lot of how I back that up is what is their capital structure? You know, are they raising capital every three months and constantly diluting? Um, people who are, you know, really good entrepreneurs and really care about every dollar, they're typically pretty tight uh, mm-hmm. with with raising money. Right. And that was actually something if you looked at Liberty Health Sciences, mm-hmm. you went back and looked at it. People said this company is crap. It's a scam, all this kind of stuff. I was like, if that's true, why do they have $40 million of real estate on the books that they've never sailed leasebacked? Mm-hmm. Why do they, why have these guys never raised a dollar for like two years? Right. So, so those are usually clues that I look for um, in understanding how somebody runs a company. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mike B. Uh, Mike B is an old school listener. Um, nice to hear from him and his email is from December 
And he's like, look, I'm getting pretty fed up with the cannabis industry uh, in December. You can see if Mike Beast's still around. <laughs> <laughs> the guy must be really fed up now. So yeah, sorry, but, yeah. sorry, Mike, but welcome to the party. Um, so he had a really interesting point that um, Alan Brockstein had talked about ancillary plays and, and you know, using ancillary to invest in cannabis. And I think, you know, we're at some point going to do a longer episode where I go through kind of some of my favorite ancillary plays. Um, but I was actually thinking about this on the weekend quite a bit that if you are becoming uh, more concerned about the limited license structure, which I am, um, but you're still incredibly bullish on the long-term uh, growth of the industry, right? Um, the ancillary companies could be a good way to play the industry without having to, you know, worry about limited licenses or any one company. And a couple of examples of this are like a Grow Gen, Scott's Miracle, Scott's Miracle Grow, or like Weed Maps. And mm -hmm. they've all been beaten down, right? They've all been taken to the woodshed um, with, with uh, you know, the general market in cannabis. And so they could represent interesting opportunities um, to play the space. And, and I don't own any of those to be clear, but um, it, it just, it is something I have been thinking more about. Mm -hmm. Now, the one ancillary play that I, I did bet really big on, which, you know, I thought was a good mix between um, being on the NASDAQ, but, and having that MSO type exposure was AgriFi. Um, and I still own a ton of this company. I've added a lot, you know, at, at the kind of under $10, um, but I am just absolutely getting crushed on this company. And so, <laughs> um, so I mean, I, I would say the benefit, so I'd say the, the negative of, of AgriFi is that it's so much earlier stage than the other companies, whereas mm -hmm. like a GrowGen um, or a Scott's Miracle Grow is really more of an established company. Scott's is, is really kind of more like a blue chip company um, than everything else. But I think there's different ways to play it. And I think the ancillary can be really interesting. And last point is I think, um, I think that other than sort of, you know, the biggest, uh, uh, limited license MSOs that we like, um, if I get more bearish, I might liquidate, you know, some public names and put it into, uh, some of the Canna tech plays, a lot of which are still private mm -hmm. that I think will be long-term winners, no matter what the industry looks like in five or 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, one thing that I do want to say is for a lot of these uh, ancillary names, you know, you got to ask yourself why do people, aside from the reasons that you just talked about, well, why do why why do people really invest in the ancillary ancillary names, right? I've always found that with these, it's if you're in a hot market, the ancillary names do tend to do well. They mm. offer a little bit of downside protection because it's not typically it's not fully tied into the plant. Mm -hmm. um, but when you have these valuations, right? Like I think Manish, you said it the best back in. 2019 it was like hey look companies are getting better you don't need to play in the mud anymore you don't need to go so far away from the core i can't remember right. exactly how you, how you go, phrased go it, right but... down the middle as opposed to the edges yeah exactly exactly and so like you know when, you, when you're seeing valuations in um for, for some of the top guys at the levels that they are today it's like you know is there really downside protection that you need for the ancillary names and if these do get a pop are you going to get the same re-rating is that you would if you had held just the core holdings right that's it's, a lot that's how i would look at it i mean it's just mm -hmm. the thesis but um, no it's really, it's a great point mm -hmm. you're, you're making a great point that look the most juice is you know um as the industry improves you know a verano or a gti is going to get a lot of love and and just so right. everyone knows 
last week, um, you know, we recorded our episode on Sunday, I think. And by Monday, I mean, the industry, the whole market was getting trashed. Um, And I brought in a little more money, um, you know, decent amount, but not a huge amount. And I just bought half and half Verano GTI. And I spent it all basically in one day. Um, And, you know, maybe I'll trade that, maybe I'll hold it. I don't know. But, you know, Abby's making a great point, right? Either, Either you're buying high quality, big MSOs. I might buy lower down that list, by the way, if I think the valuation is right, which I think it is for some. But you're still um, playing in the middle. Yeah, that's fair, right? I'm not, well, I don't know. I, I can I can buy some weird stuff sometimes, so I don't know. But <laughs> but the, the point being ancillary is interesting because it's uninteresting because the margins are not nearly as good. But mm-hmm. if you think the industry is getting more commoditized and, and margins are coming down, it's a good way to get exposure. Yes. And also, if you think uplisting and federal change is going to take a long time, then that benefits companies that are already uplisted. Mm-hmm. Right. If you think uplisting is happening tomorrow, then forget the ancillaries, go straight for the OTCs because they'll get re-rated. Right. Right. So it's hard to have an answer to that question. But that, that I am thinking more about the benefit of these things as we are in this world where federal change is looking harder and harder. Mm-hmm. Okay, Aaron J has a question, um, and there's actually two questions that are sort of related, so I'll read them both. So, Aaron J's question is: uh, He owns Columbia Care and Cresco; those are his two biggest positions, but he's also down the most on those two. So, if there's a rally, do we, you know, should he trim some and then try to buy it lower, um, or should he just keep what he has and put more money in and average down over time, or? Should he do absolutely nothing and just close his eyes? He has a five-year time horizon, so maybe he's just overthinking all of this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then Tobin has a question, um, and Tobin's question was basically, what is the right time to sell? Uh, we know in the short term that these companies are not trading on fundamentals. Okay, So how do we decide an exit target when it's not fundamentally based? Um, put another way, how do, we, how do we take profits while still leaving adequate upside? Ah, I like that second part while still leaving adequate upside. Right. So no, no right answer to this, right? I mean, both of these questions. Well, are the right answer is February, 2021. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the right time to sell yeah. one year ago? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so look, how do you essentially you're talking about a couple of things? You're talking about portfolio management and managing risk, right? Mm-hmm. And so here, here's the best way I can think about it. And, I think you look at it and you take a step back and you go, look, from a pure dollar perspective, how much exposure do I have to this industry? Okay. And do I have enough exposure or do I want more exposure? And basically one year ago, when I was screaming from the rooftops that people are taking too much risk and this stuff doesn't make sense, the the calculation that I made was, look, my exposure to the industry is too small because I liquidated so much in 2020 you know, during COVID. So I said, look, even though some things are overvalued, mostly the LPs, um, I still want more exposure, not less. So I'm not going to sell, you know, whatever I did sell, I just transferred, right? I I sold, you know, A, which might've been a Canadian LP to buy, you know, move it over to a US MSO. Now, Mm -hmm. a year later, everything's down, right? So maybe you're down less than the other thing, but that's not, that doesn't feel that good, right? Um, but so the, my answer is, look at how much dollar exposure you have, and do you want more or do you want less? So for me, I'm probably pretty close to where I want it. Maybe I can go a little bit higher. So when we have really bad days, 
I can put more money in and buy things I really like. If we have a rally, I can trim that. I can I can sell all of it and put it, you know, back into a savings account. And then, you know, that's sort of the you know, the emergency reserve money, um, you know, break glass in case we have a really bad day mm-hmm. and you you see a short term opportunity, right? Um, so it, it goes back to what we said last episode. You gotta pick your poison. Do you want to be upset because things ran away from you and you missed your chance to make money? Do you want to be upset because these things never recover um, and, you know, you just lose money, right? So Mm -hmm. sometimes being early is indistinguishable from being wrong and it's hard (laughs) to know where we're at. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would answer this question a little bit differently. Um, It's, he's 100% right that since he said, short-term fundamentals. I don't think the cannabis market has ever traded based off fundamentals, right? You and I, Manish, sure. always go back back and forth on that. It's really been a top-down trade, heavily driven off of sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know when that's going to happen, and I'm probably going to get burned when that does happen. Sure. But, but what I would say is if you start, if you're in a name, any name, and you start seeing volume pick up, price action starts happening, this thing starts getting away from you and happens day over day over day, I I look at that as a selling selling indicator. I'm not using any technicals or anything like that. Just just volume, right? Um, so, but sorry, you're saying if price is going up or down or both? Typically both. If it's going down, I'm hope hopefully I've already exited the position by then or sure. taken off my profits. But usually when it's going up, I I do this a lot when it's going up. Um, it's because a I got to curb my enthusiasm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm like, oh, I'm the smartest guy ever. I should buy more. I should buy more. I'm like, no, 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 no you're not. You're really not the smartest guy. <laughs> so. When I see volume pick up and I see price going up and it happens day over day over day, I haven't seen this obviously recently, I usually take some 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 money off the table, right? And you know, you and I always disagree with this. Uh, and the reason that I do that is because you gotta if you look at a stock chart, you gotta remember that there is somebody in this deal who's been in there for two years or two and a half years, three years now, whatever, however long. This is just an anecdotal situation that I make up in my head. And they probably have a, a much lower cost base and they could be three, four X up. And yeah. they're seeing this mm-hmm. happen over and over again, right? They're seeing 10% increase or whatever with increased volumes. They're probably going to start selling. Eventually, the buyers are going to stop coming in and the sellers are going to overtake. This always happens. There's always like a correction after it. So my thing is this, if it's a name that I really like, for example, is a name like GTI. If I do see it go up just erratically over like the, like in, within 10, within a couple of days, I would take some profits off. Um, and having said that though, there's also, you could do, you could do the res- reverse. I don't know if you remember, I think this was in March, 2021, like a year or so ago. It could have been even before, but there was some like piece that came out from the Chicago Tribune talking about how like, yeah. there could have been some corruption within GTI. Sure. Boom. Overnight. It was down like 10% or something. Right, it was down big. Yeah, I remember. It was yeah. down huge, and I was like, "That's a buying indicator. I'm just gonna p- put some in there. Like, I, I don't know if this is true or not, or whatever. I'm just gonna buy some right now." And it luckily it ended up not being true, and you know, the the stock kind of came back up. But that just kind of goes to show you that, yeah, fundamentals. You can do all the research you possibly want in this sector right now, and you should do all the research that you possibly can uh, in this sector right now. But it is still a very sentiment driven industry. And if you need any more proof, just look at your look at look at your holdings today, right? You're holding high quality names that are just getting decimated. Sure, sure. Because sentiment point. is just awful right now. Yeah. And look to to kind of um Tobin's point about fundamentals and, and when you sell, like, you know, I used to basically just underwrite on fundamentals and say, hey, this is the exit price. And if it's not here, I'm not t- I'm not going for it, right? Um but look, I, I think I've learned a lot about that too and and the idea that 
in these markets, which are not necessarily tied to fundamentals, um, it's not the best way to do it, right? So now I try to look at it holistically and say, look, one, how much do I like this company? Two, what do I think is happening here? So, you know, in Kiraleaf's case, you know, clearly people are freaking out about Russia, right? And and what's going to happen and whatever, whatever. So that's putting downward pressure on the stock. Nobody can say if that's real or not real or, or how much there is there, right? But clearly that's what's causing the downdraft. So my point is just, um, to me, when I see things that are um, are kind of putting the company down, um, that creates, to me, that's usually where I want to enter. But it also depends if you think that pain is short term, how long it'll last, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing on the flip side. When I see MSOS buying a company week over week and pushing it up, um, when I think a company might be hitting its buyback, right, and, and, and juicing its own stock up, I'm more likely to trim it. Right, not saying I sell it all, not saying I won't come back, but I'm more likely to trim it. And then, lastly, in terms of buying, I want to target companies who are going to benefit from the catalysts, uh, the state level catalysts, fundamentally and optically. So, think New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Virginia, um, Cure Leaf, by the way, New Jersey, New York, uh, and Connecticut. Right. So, um, that's kind of where you go. Hmm, that could be interesting if when that turns around. Um, and the the spotlight comes back that that company could get a lot of love for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, just rounding out the the end here. Um, question from Darko about how uplisting works, and basically when a company uplists, will we need to sell on one exchange and buy on the other? Um, so that actually would trigger tax, right? When you sell it on one exchange and buy it back on the other, um, it would trigger a capital gain if you if you made money. Um, you would not get a capital loss if you do it. So it's it's not good either way. It, it, you'd lose it either way. I think typically they just uh, automatically journal you over. Um, but if they don't, you can also call your brokerage and they'll just journal you over to the, the whichever side. So pretty straightforward there. Okay, yeah. last, last question. Um, this is from Justin Scott. It's a lot more complex of a question, um, but basically Justin's asking, why isn't this industry a race to zero? Isn't it totally a commodity business? It seems like everything is all margin and price compression. Why will company values go up instead of down? Um, how much upside is in any one company? And why is this asymmetric? Why, where is the asymmetric risk reward in this industry? Um, and I think uh, Justin wrote this right before he shorted the entire cannabis industry in November of <laughs> 2021. And congratulations to him. <laughs> So look, um, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think there's definitely something here in the idea that there's margin compression and the industry is getting more commoditized. I think it's definitely a longer conversation. Um, But just quickly speaking, what I'll tell you is think about the fact that the majority of sales and profitability in this industry come from Illinois, Florida, Pennsylvania, maybe Mass., right? Like a very few number of states, which are driving the profitability. And two of them, Florida and Pennsylvania are still medical only. Okay. There's a tremendous amount of demand that's to be unlocked here. We are Mm -hmm. still very early in this game. Um, But the economics of this industry will shift over time. So it's definitely getting more competitive. So there's a balancing act here, short-term margin compression in certain mature states, um, versus huge margin expansion in states that are turning over, 
right? So that's like uh, the short-term compression, you know, we'll probably see in mass, for example, you know, versus in New Jersey, you're probably going to be making money hand over fist. Yeah. Right? And and overall, the sector is growing even in those mature states. So even you are though you are seeing mature uh, margin compression, um, you are still seeing sales increasing, right? Because more and more entrants are coming in. It's still a nascent industry. Yep. Absolutely true. Um, and then also companies are achieving operating leverage. So Curaleaf, you know, it's just gigantic size. It's starting to get a lot of operating leverage, right? Um, so that is to say that there's negatives and there's positives, and we have to keep watching how they balance out. Now, when we talk about asymmetric risk reward, the idea is limited downside, but a lot more upside. And I would say mm-hmm. to you, when you have a company like Verano, which is trading basically sub six times EBITDA, um, on, and that's on 22 EBITDA, in my opinion. Um, and I think it's really, really hard in any industry to get companies at five to six times EBITDA. Now, granted, they don't have 280E and federal, all, all the other stuff, right? Uh, but it's really hard to find companies that are well-run and growing and have a tremendous growth story ahead of them trading at low multiples. So from a downside perspective, like like even if you imagine EBITDA falls off a cliff over the next couple of years, which I don't think it will, um, you know, that five to six times EBITDA could become what, maybe eight times, right? Like if, if EBITDA falls a lot, like, like there's not that much downside when you account for all the growth. Yeah. So I don't think there's that much downside risk on these companies, um, but I think the upside scenario is pretty clear. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of upside. I, I wouldn't say it's pretty clear. I would say the pie is growing, right? Yeah, but I, sorry, oh, when I say sorry, and and you were talking, sorry, I know, I know, we we're specifically talking about operating leverage over here, right? Well, I, there's a couple of things, right? There's operating leverage. There's new states turning online. Mm-hmm. But if you just think fundamentally about buying something at six times EBITDA, right, and you think that once there's a national spotlight on it. It could be more like, you know, I use 15 times EBITDA, right? And people say I'm too conservative. I should be using 20, right? Some people want to use 120 times. I don't know. But <laughs> but if you use 15 times, which is relatively conservative, and we're trading at a, at six, depends on the company, obviously. Um, but you, you're talking about kind of two to three times right there just on a re-rating, mm-hmm. okay? And that's not accounting for growth, that's, all those other things. Um, and then- Ultimately, CPG, big beer, big alcohol, um, big tobacco, pharma, they're looking at the industry. They will get involved at some point. The the part that we don't know is how these companies and how the industry will look when people are able to get involved, right? If mm-hmm. they're able to get involved today, then we have pretty clear line of sight. If they're not able to get involved for another three or four years, because that's when you know safe and stuff like that happens then we're in a different world, right? But ultimately, you have to think about, like, even if these companies stay flat on their EBITDA, they don't get another dollar of EBITDA for two or three years, mm-hmm. um, and then they get acquired, right? And and obviously, the industry is more competitive at that point, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think the acquisition company buying them at six to eight to 10 times EBITDA, uh, this is the kind of the conservative scenario, you still have pretty limited downside, okay? And it's hard to find in any industry um, a sort of stable-ish business with growth that you can double, triple, plus your money on potentially with limited downside. That's very, very hard to find. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why at the end of the day, I still am bullish but hesitant on where we are today. 
Mm-hmm. Well said. Cautiously optimistic. <laughs> Cautiously optimistic. And look, that's also why I'm thinking about alternative paths about, hey, if we want to bet on this industry and we're starting to get worried about limited licenses, maybe we re- reallocate to ancillary. Maybe we reallocate towards tech, right? Which I, yeah. I know still has that that huge growth potential. So there's different ways to play the trade. Um, I think there's definitely cracks in the MSO armor, uh, especially the way the political winds are kind of blowing against big business. Um, but I also think that these businesses have have been proven to be pretty well run. They're, they've proven to be pretty sticky in terms of their ability to be defensible. Mm-hmm. Um, but but mostly there's just a long runway ahead with new states coming online. And, and we're still pretty early in that part of the story. Right. Yeah. Abby, any uh, any final thoughts for people on the Q&A here? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, listen, we covered a lot of things. It was a, a lot of broad topics and we love hearing from you guys. So, you know, we, we don't get to it as often as we would like to, but um, uh, it's it's not because it's it's literally because of time, what's going on in the markets. Uh, and then we've had a lot of exciting topics as well. But uh, yeah, and like food for thought for people, you know, keep the questions coming. We love hearing from you. It keeps, uh, it, ma- it makes it fresh and, you know, like, hearing the answers to these questions, like are you and I discussing these, uh, these questions, uh, it just gets our brains thinking in a different way. Right. For sure. And, um, any, listen, anything that gets our brains working is a, a refreshing change. So thank you for that. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, anything but, that pushes us off the ledge. Yes. <laughs> brings us back or pushes yeah. us, I don't know. Yeah. But listen, we, we love the questions guys. There's some really interesting discussion that happens. Um, and, and I think for a lot of these things, there's no right answer. So it's, it's really actually interesting to talk them out. So podcast at gmail.com. Send in your questions. No guarantee on when they will get answered, but hopefully <laughs> eventually we will answer them. Thank you. Until next time, guys. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decision, an investor should seek individualized advice from from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.